The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. All right, let's continue our worship this morning with the reading of God's Word. And let's stand as we read God's Word. We're going to be moving around a couple of different places in Scripture this morning, so if you don't want to try and flip very quickly from book to book, you can follow along on the screen. Starting this morning with Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 32 and 33. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. And James chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is, no, it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? You may be seated. Uh, given the topic for this morning, I thought we'd start just by praying for marriages in our midst. So, Lord, uh, we thank you for the institution of marriage. We thank you for this good gift you've created. Thank you for each marriage in this place. Lord, we ask that you would cause these marriages to flourish. We ask that they would be sources of life, not only for their families, but for their church and their communities. We ask that, um, that we would see your blessing through these unions. God, I pray that you'd help us to think rightly about what our marriages are and aren't. Help us to see them as your word sees them, not as the world sees them. Lord, help us to take our vows seriously, to love our spouses in a way that's self-sacrificial, to know that there are peaks and valleys in every good relationship, times where there feels like greater connectivity than others. Lord, when times are hard, help us to turn to you. When times are really hard, help us to be honest about that and to get help. 
Lord, if there is hurt lingering in any, in any marriages, I pray that there would be forgiveness. I pray that there would be a stubborn commitment to see things through, to speak honestly, to give mercy. Lord, for any here today who um, have pain from past marriages, I pray that you would address that, that you would show them your kindness. For any here, Lord, who um, don't even want to hear about marriage, maybe because they wish they were married but aren't for some reason, I pray that um, our words this morning would also be helpful for them, that they would catch a greater glimpse of life in you and see how um, they're not missing out on anything. But in you, we do have all we need. So Lord, now we ask that you'd feed us from your word. Help us as we continue to go through these Ten Commandments. Help us to see them as the gift that they are from you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. When 20th century British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge was on assignment in India, he left his residence one evening to go for a refreshing swim in the river. And as he entered the water... A little ways off, he noticed the figure of a woman from a nearby village who had totally disrobed and was going in for a dip. Now at home, he had always been faithful to his wife, but now across the world, Muggridge felt overpowered by the allure. No one would ever know. He paused for a moment, but then he suppressed his conscience and he swam furiously toward the woman. And when he was just two or three feet away from her, he emerged from the water to attempt to seduce her. And a wave of shock came over him. The woman was a leper. Her nose was decayed. There were sores and blotches all over her skin. She smiled at him with a hideous, toothless grin. And this experience left Muggridge trembling and thinking, what a wretched woman. But then he realized... What a wretched man am I. His shocking misjudgment was also a metaphor for the horror that adultery always is. And what wretched people are we, the Bible warns, when we look for sexual gratification outside of marriage? What we'll find is an open-mouthed kiss with death and decay. Like all of the Ten Commandments, the seventh, do not commit adultery, isn't needlessly restrictive, but it's actually freeing. It keeps us away from a steep and deadly ledge off of the path of human flourishing. So today we're going to talk about adultery, and it's a topic that isn't just for those who are unhappily married. It's not even a topic that's just for those who are married at all. It gets after the infidelity that creeps into all of our hearts, the madness that overtakes us and convinces us for a moment that stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. So we'll look at how our unfaithfulness is sin against others, sin against ourselves, and of course, it's sin against God. And we'll remember the good news that even our horrific unfaithfulness doesn't alter the commitments of our faithful God. I'm going to keep using the term adultery today, even though properly understood, this commandment does get after all categories of sexual sin. Jesus talks about that in the Gospels, and even in this book of Exodus, 
there are catalogs of other laws related to sexuality later, and so this commandment is kind of like a section header for all of those. And when you think about it, any type of premarital sex or fornication, even if you're not married, even if the other person isn't married, it's still a crime against marriage itself, as will become more clear when we look at the Genesis passage later. So let's start by thinking about adultery as sin against others. The statistics say that 20% of American marriages see at least one incident of infidelity through relations with someone other than the spouse. And that's just the physical act itself. 20%, one in five. And then there's the fantasizing about it. A recent report, now this was from a, a credible nonprofit research institution, so I, I, I'm shocked by these statistics, but it, it looks legit. Um, get this, in America, 49% of married women and 75% of married men use hardcore pornography at least once a month. In, in Matthew 5, Jesus says that if you've even looked at another person with lustful intent, you have committed adultery in your heart. Now, most all societies across the world and across time have deemed adultery as a monstrous sin, and that wasn't because they had a Christian viewpoint. No, it's just because all societies, at least until fairly recently, have seen the value of families staying together. Marriages breaking apart creates psychological damage for spouses and for the kids. It robs everyone involved of stability for years to come. And, and that destruction is noticeable even in the virtual adultery of pornography. So that same study says that in couples where neither spouse used pornography... 90% felt fulfilled, stable, fully committed in their marriage, but that percentage drops significantly when porn is involved. So even from a worldly, pragmatic viewpoint, adultery hurts people. But the hurt is even better understood from a biblical perspective. So like the commandments we've been looking at on about the Sabbath, about murder, this commandment also pulls from the very order of creation. Genesis chapter 2 depicts when the first woman is presented to the first man. And he had felt his need of her, and now they are given to each other for companionship and for unashamed pleasure. But they also needed each other in another way. Only together could they complete the garden mandate to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And so this teaming up of a man and a woman, specially crafted for each other. This is what Genesis 2.24 says is replicated in every marriage as a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So there's a mysterious union that takes place. It's not just a legal union. It's not just an agreement to be companions. It's a picture of permanence and total interconnectedness. For lack of a better word, there's something mystical that happens when a man and a woman are joined together. Now, adultery and divorce may smash, disfigure, bury that union, but they can never really undo the link that's happened. It's the most ridiculous thing ever when our culture tries to put forward a reality where ex-spouses can learn to just be friends and pretend that nothing happened. No, that brokenness persists because an unnatural severing has happened. And if there's repentance, of course God can bring renewal and healing but the scars and the phantom pains will persist until the day when all tears are wiped away. Adultery hurts another person because it breaks a sacred union. Pr 
promises are broken, lies are told, and rejection has been formalized. So similar to murder, you're brutalizing something that God has made. Not the human life itself, but the human dignity and the sacred beauty of relational union that God has created in marriage. So we can fairly easily see that adultery harms the spouse, but we should also see that the adulterer lashes out at the human dignity of both the spouse and also of their partner in adultery. That person is harmed too. One Bible scholar has said that murder, uh, sorry, adultery like murder is another outwardly sinful act that begins with the devaluing of another. So lust itself is an act of contempt. It's reducing someone to a source of sexual gratification and nothing more. So if the sixth command prohibited regarding our neighbor as expendable, the seventh command prohibits regarding our neighbor as consumable. That really struck me that anger and murder treat people as expendable. Lust and adultery treat people as consumable. In other words, this, this focus on the need for physical gratification, it treats the spouse contemptuously by saying, hey, you're not giving me what I crave, and that's all you are good for. And then it also treats the new romantic interest with contempt because it makes him or her into just an outlet for bodily lust. And this is just as true when the romantic interest is an airbrushed photo or an actor on the screen. The act of sex was designed to happen between a man and a woman in marriage precisely because it's a space where both parties have to be vulnerable and there's safety for both within vows of permanent care. But in the porn or sex worker industry, only the consumer is safe and only the service provider is vulnerable. Now the performer may act as if it were all fun and games, that's their job, but each one of those actors or models or dancers or consorts or whatever, each has a story of tragedy that got them on this path. And they would rather be anywhere else, but they don't really know how to get out. Adultery always objectifies and uses people, whether it's porn or a one-night stand or even a so-called new and lasting relationship. Oh, not so, some may object. I'm not using someone. I'm only cheating because I finally found the one I love. Please, I'll, I'll refrain from using profanity, but let me just say that the it's love justification of adultery is excrement of the worst kind. Christians, we must understand the word love the way the Bible does. It's not merely a feeling. It involves feelings. It's not merely a feeling. Feelings come and go and can come again. But love is a decision. Love is a commitment. Love isn't primarily about what you get, but about what you give. You are devoted to what is truly in the best interest of the other, even if it comes at cost to yourself. Sexual intimacy is supposed to be the deepest form of knowing someone. But adultery makes it not knowing, but consuming another and then discarding them when we're just not feeling it anymore. Adultery destroys lives and families. It breaks vows. It heaps contempt on people who are created in God's image. And unfortunately, those who are unfaithful to their spouses often grow calloused and hard-hearted. They don't care that it hurts others. Proverbs 30 verse 20 says, This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. Adulterers don't usually care that they're hurting others. And that's why we should talk about 
how in addition to this sin being against others, adultery is also a sin against ourselves. 1 Corinthians 6 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There's a sense in which you're hurting yourself in lasting ways through this action. And it's, it's out of that concern for uh, a son not to hurt himself that the fatherly voice of the book of Proverbs warns, the adulteress with her smooth words who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God Her house sinks down to death, and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. And then three chapters later, we read in Proverbs chapter 5, the the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol, She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner and at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, How I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. So are you catching how wildly destructive Scripture says adultery is to oneself? Proverbs 7, verse 5 says it even more plainly. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Not scared yet? Proverbs 23, verse 27 says, For a prostitute is a deep pit, an adulteress is a narrow well. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. By the way, these concepts aren't gender specific, okay? Male adulterers are also like deep pits and narrow wells. You stoop down and you think, ooh, there's nice cool water here. And then you fall in and you can't get out. Second Timothy describes godless men who, quote, creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. And that trap of adultery often starts in the most subtle of ways. You may have heard the term emotional affair, which is simply a way of recognizing that most adultery starts long before the physical act. It starts in the life of the mind, noticing a little too much about the other person, enjoying the conversation a little too much, even starting to feel a need for the casual interaction that you know you'll have when you cross paths. And excitement starts to build. Matter-of-fact pleasantries grow into free laughter and banter. And then a comparison starts to be built in your mind between the person you're married to and this person that you sometimes wish you could be with. And then bitterness toward your spouse starts to grow. What's happening is that in your desperation to have what feels like the reprieve of enjoying this new person, maybe even just for a few minutes each day or an hour each week, you're giving them some of the safety and the vulnerability that should only be reserved for your spouse. And in so doing, you're opening up yourself to a world of hurt. The further you go, the more awkward and haunting it's going to be when you pull back. Or if you don't pull back, then you're risking your whole life coming, crashing down and getting trapped in that deep pit or narrow well. And if we're caught in this sort of delusion where we're 
swimming out to seduce the leper, so to speak. There's another way that it harms ourselves. It blocks our prayer life and robs us of any joy in our salvation. Things become muddied between us and God. Listen to this explanation from the prophet Malachi chapter 2. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. It tells us to guard ourselves in our spirits from faithlessness. So how do we guard our minds in order to protect ourselves from the self-destruction of adultery? Just as with murder, we said that The initial feeling of anger isn't necessarily wrong. It's what you do next that makes all the difference. And the same is true for adultery. We can't always help coming across a feeling of attraction to someone. There are many beautiful people in this world with attractive appearances and personalities. We're not meant to run and hide every time one of them comes across our paths. We should be able to look them in the face and have a normal conversation with an attractive person without getting fidgety or shifty-eyed. Uh, If not, then that probably speaks to a deeper problem you need to address. Um, But it's not wrong to feel like, wow, that's a really attractive person. We are sexual beings. We're created to appreciate beauty. But the beauty of the person who's not our spouse should be like the beauty that we pass quickly on a drive through the country. Oh, look at that. Isn't that nice? Not like the beauty that we stare at when visiting an art museum pondering up close the contours and the angles and meditating on the significance of the object. So take, for example, King David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. He's walking on the roof of his palace, and he looks down and he sees a beautiful woman bathing on her roof. And we talked about roofs last week, about how in the ancient Near East, everyone did stuff on their flat roofs. It was like the all-purpose room of the house. So she would have had some sort of dividers up to block her from the view of people on the other roofs, but it probably just slipped her mind like, oh, there is one roof, the palace, that's much higher than mine. Um, So King David looks down, sees a beautiful woman, and he doesn't avert his eyes. He gazes. Then he inquires after who she is. And then he arranges a meeting. So there are at least several points along that journey when he easily could have stopped himself and said, what am I doing and why? But instead he felt like he deserved what he wanted. And so he opened the door not only to adultery, but to grievous, other grievous sins to cover up that adultery. Adultery always prompts the need for deceit or neglect or abuse or worse to cover it up or to keep it going. In David's case, this pursuit ended up creating great conflict across his family and across his kingdom, really, for the rest of his life. So how do we guard ourselves from adultery? The short answer is that we walk in step with the Holy Spirit. As we live in conscious reliance upon God, he will produce the fruit of goodness, faithfulness, and self-control in our lives. We'll be aware of what we're thinking and why. We won't 
drift through our days haphazardly entertaining any impulse that comes along, but rather we'll live with active intentionality. And that sort of lifestyle is then going to respond in vigilance against any tendency toward unfaithfulness. Like I've said in past sermons, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So we're not going to adopt an attitude where lust is just something to be kind of tamed and coddled. No, rather it needs to be ended in our lives. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So don't merely control those tendencies. Put them to death. Putting to death means drastic action. Jesus used hyperbole to describe how seriously we should take this need to guard ourselves against lust. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So if you need to, only use a computer in front of your spouse or at a public coffee house or library. Go back from a smartphone to a flip phone. Get rid of your TV or whatever streaming services you're abusing. Have someone to call. Have an excuse when your coworkers on business trips are going out somewhere dodgy. Take precautions not to get familiar in the first place with that coworker or neighbor or parent of your child's classmate to whom you feel drawn in an unhealthy way. Would you rather be thought a little bit standoffish or potentially create years of torment for yourself by playing with fire. And if you've already gone too far, seriously, consider switching jobs, asking for a transfer to another department, drop that night class, leave that book club, don't go back to that restaurant or place of business or whatever it is. Here's the thing, though. When temptation comes knocking, you may lose sight of how your actions could hurt others and you'll definitely lose sight of how your actions could hurt you because it's just all you can see is the excitement. That's the whole thing with temptation, right? We see this as early as Eden, that we're made to believe that, you know, you've just been viewing things in too limited of a manner. Maybe you just didn't have the full perspective before, and so we're enticed to redraw our boundaries. And so to really guard ourselves, to really guard ourselves, We need to understand that adultery isn't just a sin against others. It's not just a sin against ourselves. Adultery is ultimately an evil committed against God. It's only when we rightly fear God and see how he comes into the equation that we'll then have the proper motivation and power to change. This was certainly the case for the biblical patriarch Joseph. His story would have been well known to the the original audience of the Ten Commandments. He was like a national hero to them. About 400 years earlier, when Joseph was a servant in the household of an Egyptian nobleman named Potiphar, we read in Genesis 39, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph's concern is not only for Potiphar, but even more for God's view in the matter. 
So when she grabs at his clothes, Joseph just runs away, leaving his outer garment in her hands. And then she becomes angry, and she spins a lie, and she shows the garment to her husband. And then Joseph is thrown in prison precisely for the crime he didn't commit. Does your fear of God go that far? Would you run from sexual temptation that dramatically, even if that choice would be a source of accusation against you in the eyes of the world? You'll only do that if you care more deeply about not how you feel about the situation, not how others feel about the situation, but you have to feel most deeply about how God feels about it. So what is the big deal about adultery? Like what if hypothetically there really was a situation in which no one would get hurt and it wouldn't come back to bite me? Well, beyond just desiring a a stable society and, you know, uh, caring for the spouses, does God have any other interest in preventing adultery? Listen to how Ephesians 5 explains more fully what's behind Genesis chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes, No one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. And here he quotes from Genesis, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So an argument is being made that spouses should cherish, nourish, love, respect one another because they are one flesh. And then it jumps to this comparison of cosmic proportions saying just as Christ cherishes and nourishes his church because we are members of his body. So that's the real mystery, Paul says. Is Christ in the church, and that's really just marriage here is a foreshadowing of that greater reality. In other words, if you want to know how marriage is supposed to work, look at the greater reality to which marriage is supposed to point. The human institution of marriage, starting with Adam and Eve, as good and as useful as it is just on its own, is also a theater production of sorts. It's a play to portray the union of God with his people. The mysterious union and permanence that's at work there. And so what does that mean for adultery? It means that we're free to betray our spouse when Jesus betrays his. Namely, never. He will never leave us or forsake us. But will the same loyalty be true of us? What if the reason we're so prone to adultery in marriage is because we're so adulterous toward God? Throughout the prophets, talk of adultery and idolatry is mixed. You can't always tell if there was real adultery happening or if the prophet is speaking about the people's adultery against God. And and I think most of the time it's both. But remember the book of Hosea that we looked at in life groups. It had all that really graphic imagery, okay? Let's, uh, let's try to cash in on that work we did. Um, so it says, Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples. For you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Or Ezekiel 16, where Israel is called, Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. So 
What this is showing us is that there is a deep heart-level connection between how the seventh commandment plays out horizontally among people and then how the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, how that plays out on a vertical level. So if you have been unfaithful or sexually impure in deed or in thought, this is how you need to understand your predicament. You are adulterous among people because your heart is adulterous toward God. And then, if you're a person who actually has no porn problem, no wandering eyes or emotions, no temptation whatsoever to look outside your marriage, this is why the seventh commandment still applies to you. Because whatever ways you do look to created things for fulfillment apart from God, it is a form of adultery. Don't look down on those people who get caught in sexual sin. You too have an adulterous heart. And that's why the book of James says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? It compares our search for satisfaction in this world apart from God to marital unfaithfulness. And it describes the spirit of God as jealous over us. And so the call to faithfulness in marriage is a picture of the loyalty that we owe to God alone. It's a reminder that in both our romance and in our worship, we must give ourselves to the right one exclusively. When we see him clearly, when we love him, when we are faithful to him, then we are also faithful to our spouses and to the sexual purity to which God has called us. But when we're not seeing him clearly, when we're cheating on him, and finding more pleasure in created things than in our creator, well, then it's no surprise that adultery happens, and often that adulterers leave the church or the faith as part of that trajectory. So we can either be part of a story of purity and devotion to God and to the vows that we've made, or we can be part of a story of seduction away from what is good. And realistically, we are all part of both stories. We have not been faithful. But the good news is that our Lord is the faithful husband of his people. He is the one to whom the prophet Hosea was pointing in taking back his adulterous wife from a life of infidelity. That's what our God does for his covenant people. He searches us out. He redeems us. He brings us home. He says, I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness. And you will know Yahweh. So understanding that our faithfulness to our spouse, or if we're single, our sexual purity in general, is linked to our faithfulness to our faithful God. How might that change the way that we go about obeying this seventh commandment? We have to pursue marital faithfulness and sexual purity as a component of our faithfulness to God. We, we, don't, we don't do it just for protection of others. We're not faithful just to guard ourselves. We obey this commandment out of devotion to our Lord, to whom we're bound by covenant. He loved the church. He gave himself up for her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, holy and without blemish. He loved his own to the very end. He rose again with indestructible life, which we'll one day share, and he's coming back to claim us for himself. So if we have failed, 
We turn to his mercy, one for us at the cross. We don't hide our infidelity, but we voluntarily expose it. If there are any here today who have a past of adultery or sexual impurity that they've been keeping hidden and secret, I want to encourage you to find freedom in bringing those sins to the light. Confess them to a brother or sister in Christ. Certainly confess them to your spouse, even if it's hurtful for him or her to hear, even if you're afraid of how they'll take it. The right thing is the right thing, even if it brings more discomfort before it brings healing. And if you feel stuck and you're not sure how to get out of the mess that you've made, please confide in a pastor. That's what we're here for, to shepherd you in the ways of life, to make sure nothing is keeping the sheep from grazing in green pastures and drinking from peaceful waters. In the book of Revelation, two women are portrayed. One is the whore of Babylon. She's a picture of the dark spiritual reality behind the world's pleasure that seeks to corrupt and to consume. And in the vision, she appears so dazzling that even the apostle John is marveling at her before the angel rebukes him. And her allure seems so desirable, but secretly, she's drunk with the blood of the saints. And she offers a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And every time we commit adultery, it is with this woman that we consort. But in the very next chapter, we see her total and inevitable demise. And then, in the chapter after that, a very different woman appears. She is the Church of Christ. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Don't miss that. She is pure and dazzling. Why? Because it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, righteous deeds. If you and I are to reject adultery, marital or spiritual, and live lives of faithfulness and purity, then it's not going to be because we have the willpower to force it. It's not going to be because we have the natural goodness to accomplish it. It'll be because of our groom's engagement gift. The grace of God is available to take us and keep us from the seductive grasp of this world and to weave us into that pure bride of Christ. That righteousness is a gift from the faithful one. Do you see him clearly? Do you love him? Do you want life in his presence more than you want a fleeting fancy or a cheap pleasure fix? Fight adulterous pleasure with real pleasure. Replace the footprint of those temptations on your heart with solid reminders of what you really want. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Lord, that's our prayer today, that you would give us this radiant purity of those who are fully devoted to you. Cleanse our hearts from their unfaithfulness. Rescue us from lives of hiddenness and deception. Lord, for any here today who have difficult steps or conversations ahead of them, I pray that you'd give them courage and commitment to the truth. Remind them that they can trust you with the unknowns or with any hostility or misunderstanding that comes from bringing those sins into the light. 
Lord, we pray that you would teach us to live for your approval most of all. And be glorified, Jesus, as we show the world that what we have in you gives us more pleasure than any of these cheap and fleeting imitations of intimacy. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.